We want to say welcome to you, whether it's dangerous. And so when I think this psalm, and when he says they look up to the hills, I don't think that's necessarily a positive thing. Going through difficult terrain, there'd be potential for assault by many enemies all around you. It could be disconcerting. If you're in a valley, I don't know if you've ever been in a case like that, and you just kind of get a little nervous. You don't exactly know why. And you, or if you ever walk through a slot canyon and you're like, I feel trapped here. And if you know there are potentially enemies or bandits lurking, it would be even scarier. You'd want help traveling through a valley like that. You'd want help traveling through areas that were difficult. You'd want the kind of help that could keep you safe. Not just somebody who would be like, hey, good job. But somebody who could actively, attentively help you. You would want to know that in obeying God, you had help along the way. This, the psalmist is using some really vivid imagery. He's saying, I, I lift up my eyes to the hills. And then he asks a, a question. We know it's a rhetorical question, but he asks a question. He says, I lift up my eyes to the hills. And I think probably maybe he was looking up to see Jerusalem. And I say, I see this far off hills. And I, does my hope come from a good place? No, my hope still doesn't come from there. But I think it was probably more than that. It was probably coming from a place where it would be very common, looking up in eyes to the hills and saying, oh, no, I'm, I'm about to go through some really tough land in my obedience to God. I'm about to go through some tough times. I'm about to encounter some dangerous situations here. Where is my help going to come from? And then he beautifully answers that for all of those who were going up to Jerusalem on the journey there. And they would actually recite this psalm through the years when they would go up in obedience on the feast times every year. And they'd recite this psalm. So he might be asking this positive, but what he's asking is, where does my help come from? And, and the question for each of us is, where does my help come from? And you think about that. Where does your help come from? What he's saying to us is, is neither the good things, maybe he's looking at Jerusalem positively, where's my help come? Oh, it doesn't come from even the good things. Or he's looking negatively, coming from all these areas. Just, where's my help going to come when I see all these things in the hills? He's, however, he's answering that question. Ultimately, his confession is that neither enemies can thwart his obedience to God, nor is ultimately Jerusalem where he puts his hope in obedience to God, his help. His help as he makes his journey in obeying and pursuing and following God. It doesn't come from any of these temporal places he looks around and sees. He says, my help comes from the Lord. And, and the question for each of us today as we're reading the psalm is, how do we answer that question? When you are asked that question, where does my help come from? What's your real answer? And I want you to make sure you answer that question honestly. And it requires some, some chewing. Requires some thinking about. And most of us have two kinds of answers we give when everybody asks us a, a theological or biblical question, right? We have the, the answer that's always Jesus, you know, the, the right answer, the Sunday school answer. And then we the one we're supposed to give. And then we have the one that's functionally true. So yes, we all know, yes, my, my answer is, yeah, my help comes from Jesus. Sure, that's, that's, that's right and it's true. But is it functionally true for you? When you lift up your eyes to the hills, when, when, when life gets a little sketchy, when things are difficult, when you feel like you're in over your head, when you're, you're obeying God and yet things look like they're getting very difficult, or maybe they are difficult, maybe you're walking through the valley of the shadow of death, where do you turn to for help? Where does your help come from? Do you just try to pull yourself up and psych yourself out? Do you, do you start Googling 
Do you look to other people? Do you, do you turn to distractions? Do you turn to ignoring your problems or maybe drowning them out? When you need help, where do you look? Where does your help come from? The psalmist is directing our place and our, and our gaze to the best place, really the, the only reliable place to look to for help. And he says, Yahweh, well, that's what it means, the Lord, this is the covenant name of God, Yahweh, the creator. That's who he's looking to, Yahweh, the creator. And he, he says all throughout this verse, all throughout these verses, he says it six times, the, the God, Yahweh, the creator, he's my help. How does he help? Oh, he's my keeper. He keeps, he's keeping me. He will keep me. What do we need to see from that for ourselves personally? Is that Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God, he's the creator, and he's my keeper. Yahweh, the creator, is my keeper. And that's what we see really in the verse, first two verses here. He says, my help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. When, when the psalmist says, Yahweh, he's, he's calling on this very special, important name. And it's important for us to, to, to answer this question, is, is God, is the Lord Yahweh to us? In the Old Testament, when they called on the Lord, what we see here, they, they wrote it down that way because it was, his name was so holy, they didn't even want to write it because it was a very personal name. It was a, it was a unique revealed name it was a name revealed uniquely to God's covenant people who had been chosen by God called by God who were following God and so only those who are belonging to God can call him by this name and that's a question really for us as we're reading a psalm like this is do we call him by the covenant name. Do we call him Yahweh? Do we call him our Lord? Because he's, we know he's chosen us. But we desire to pursue him, to follow him, to obey him, to love him. So you can be confident that he has chosen you and that you're his. And so you can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. And he's the Lord. He made heaven and earth. I did, I did a little studying this past week. I'm not going to share any of those details with you. But I did a little studying about the vastness of the universe. Just how... Well, maybe sure a few. Uh, how dramatically big our universe is. When you think about that, when we say he's the creator of, of the heavens and the earth, you need to actually put that into context, thinking of what does that mean? What is God capable of? How big is God? Earth is about 8,000 miles in diameter. It is about 238,000 miles from the moon. That's a lot of miles. We've only been to the moon just a few times in history so far, or been around the moon. And then in perspective, the sun, it's 91 million miles from the earth. If you think about Apollo 10 in the history, it was the fastest spacecraft that was ever manned, and it traveled like 24,500 miles an hour. That would take 156 days to go to the sun, and then 156 days to come back just in the sun? The far edge of our solar system, I was reading, is, is 100,000 times 93 million miles away. That's just an unfathomable number. There's this spacecraft they launched in 1977, Voyager 1, humanity's most distant spacecraft right now. And it just reached interstellar space just a little while ago on the edge of our solar system. And, and it's estimated to be traveling like 38,000 miles an hour. And at that speed, it's going to take another 30,000 years to reach the outside of our own solar system. 
30,000 years at 38,000 miles an hour. At the outside of that cloud, it's 3.2 light years away. 30,000 years of travel at 38,000 miles an hour. That the limits of our Milky Way galaxy are 1.9 million light years away. I can't even do the math on how many years that would take. I think if, if, if the Voyager spacecraft was traveling at the speed it currently is, it would take something like 17 billion years to reach the edge of the Milky Way alone. That's how vast just the Milky Way is. The observable universe is, is about 48 billion, with a B, billion times larger than our galaxy. God, he made the heavens and the earth. You know, as humans, we, we like to think we have power or, or control over what we make. God has all power. He's made the heavens, and he's made the earth, and he's made us. And he knows us intricately. And, and surely what the psalmist is trying to get us to see is surely the Lord who created the heavens, and he created the earth, and he created the hills and the valleys that we walk through. Surely he's able to keep us in every hill. He's the Lord of every hill. He's the Lord of every valley. He's sovereign over every detail in life. He's unlimited in every way. He's able to help you no matter what surrounds you. Yahweh, our creator, he's your keeper. And then verses 3 and 4, they answer a question that you might be asking. Well, how does he keep me? How does he keep us? Well, Yahweh, he keeps you attentively. That's what verses 3 and 4 say. Yahweh, the creator, he keeps you. And he does that attentively. He does it attentively. He says, he, this creator of the universe who has all power, all ability over all things, he's not just distant. He will keep your foot from even being moved. He'll keep your foot from being moved. And he's not, he's not distant. He's attentive. He's personal. And he's so attentive, and he says, he who keeps you, he's not going to slumber. You know, sometimes life is a little unsteady. It's a little shaky. And, and your foot, it represents your stand, your, the place you're standing in. It also represents the path you're taking, every step you take. And so when he says, he says, he will not let your foot be moved, he won't let your foot be moved off this path as you are in a path of obedience towards him. Remember, the psalm of sense going up to obey him, to worship God. As you are seeking to worship God, seeking to obey God, he's not going to let your foot be moved off that path. He, wherever you are standing in him, he's not going to let you be moved. I, I went hiking about four years ago, a little over four and a half years ago or so. Well, uh, as a family, we went hiking out on the West Coast and the Olympic Peninsula in Washington State, and there's this one hike, it's called Hurricane Ridge, and it comes up to a, a pretty sharp peak, and at some points, there is not a very wide path, and, and the path is only like this wide at the top, and, and, and the hill goes down really steep on one side, and then a sheer on the other side, and, and it can get a little sketchy, and so when we were going, Eva was five and a half, and so when we were on those really small paths, there weren't a lot of them, but where there were small paths, I would reach my hand back, and I would just hold her. Why? Because I didn't want her to slip. I didn't want her to fall down. I didn't want her to, to go and tumble down the, the precipice. Well, well, the Lord is even better than any earthly parent. He says, the Lord, the creator of heaven and earth, it, it's that personal. He will keep your foot from being moved. 
And he's attentive. He's not going to slumber. He's not watching from a distance. As a Christian, you're, as, a, as one of God's people, this chosen covenant people, your footing is secure. You stand. Think of how you stand as a Christian. You, you're standing in the gospel of Jesus Christ. You're standing on the grace of God. You're standing by faith in the faith that God has given you. You're standing in the freedom that Jesus Christ gives. You are standing in his strength by his Holy Spirit and he is the one who keeps your foot. He says he won't won't slumber. And he uses two different words. He won't slumber, he won't sleep. But he, he won't slumber doesn't mean he's, he's not getting drowsy. He's not like inattentive. No. He, he, is, he will not slumber. He's an attentive God. You know, they say that, that being really drowsy, being very tired, is just as bad as when you're driving drunk. You, you shouldn't drive when you're extremely tired. It's dangerous because you can't pay attention. And so the, the psalmist is telling us, hey, God's not falling asleep. He's not drowsy like, oh, what? What did you say? What, where are you going? What are you doing? No, he's, he's aware. He's not going to slumber. If a watchman gets drowsy, they're, they're likely to miss out on potential threats. If a lifeguard's sleepy, they might miss out on a drowning child. In life, we get drowsy. We need to lay down at times. You know, sometimes when I'm studying long hours, um, I'll be studying, and then all of a sudden I'm like, oh, I just lost track of what was I doing? Like, and then I look, and I've got garbly gook on the screen because my hands have been typing. and I was drowsy. I was inattentive. He says, God, he doesn't slumber. He doesn't lie down. He's always active. He's attentive. He's keeping, his, his eye is ever open, he's ever watchful, ever vigilant, ever attentive. He doesn't, he says, by the way, he's not just the one who keeps you, he who keeps Israel, all of God's people, and he also keeps you, he's, he's not going to slumber and he's not going to sleep. When you sleep, you can't hear. When you sleep, you're not aware of what's going on around you, you're oblivious. He says, God's not like that, he's attentive. He doesn't slumber, he doesn't sleep. I think there's some irony here as well that, that maybe the psalmist is relating back to the story of Elijah when Elijah, he is challenging the prophets of Baal. There's 450 of these prophets, and and Elijah challenges them. He says, okay, let's build a couple altars. You build your altar, they build it, and he builds his altar. And then he takes his altar, and he he piles up the stones, and then then he has them pour on four of these large, and it says jars. Don't think a little jar. Think these massive water jars. So he fills up these, I don't know, 30, 40-gallon jars jars, three or four of them, and he dumps them all over the altar. He had dug a trench around it. He says, okay, do that. Now do it again. Do it again. Do it again. Four times they dump all these jars, 12 jars of water all over the altar, so much that it runs down all over the altar, soaks everything, goes into the ditch. And then he tells us what happens in, in 1 Kings. He gives us his contrast and says in 1 Kings 18, 26, says they, talking about the prophets of Baal, they prepared their altar, and they called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, O Baal, answer us. But there was no voice, no one answered. And they limped around the altar they had made, and at noon Elijah mocked him, saying, Cry aloud, for he's a god. Either he's musing, or he's relieving himself, or he's on a journey, or maybe he's asleep, and he has to be awakened. And they cried aloud, and they cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances till the blood gushed out upon them. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation. But there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. The false gods of this world, they are asleep. They do not speak. They're asleep. They're oblivious. They don't help. They're not attentive. We talked about last week, what, what are you looking to as your God? 
what do you, what do you turn to? What he says is that no, unlike other gods, God is not asleep. He's not slumbering. He keeps you attentively. He doesn't sit idly by. And actually, I love the, the account of Elijah. When he, he, he pours all the water all over and it fills up the trenches. And then he just prays a simple prayer to God. And the fire of the Lord comes down, consumes not only the burnt offering, not only the wood there, but also the stones and all the water in the trench. God is an active, attentive God. He doesn't sit idly by. He keeps us attentively. And then verses 5 and 6 answer the question, really, in what way does he keep you? How does he keep you? He keeps you attentively. In what way does he keep you? Oh, he keeps you actively. He is active in his keeping. Yahweh, he keeps you actively. The Lord is your keeper. He's not just out there. He's not just the keeper of Israel. He's your keeper. And then think about this. It says, the Lord is your shade on your right hand. That's personal and that's active. You see, the right hand, it's, it's, it symbolizes our activities, our work, our labors. Our, our feet can symbolize the steps we take and, and how we're standing. Our, our hands symbolize what we do. And so it says, God, in everything that you're doing, he's active. Everywhere you put, everything you put your hand to, in every way that you're working, whatever you're doing, the Lord is your shade at your right hand. He's the one who enables you. He's actively enabling you. He's actively shielding you, your right hand. And shade, it's, it's symbolic, and, and, and for good reason, in a desert area, you want shade for protection. You know, sometimes we think of shade as a negative. In, in this context, this is not a negative thing. This is when it's hot outside. Now, now maybe you've been outside working in the, the peak of July, and you're out in the middle of a field, and the sun is beating down on you, and it's 100 degrees like a, a good South Carolina summer. And if you have ever been out in the open in the heat, you know that after a while you need some shade, some shade to relieve you so that you can continue to work. So it says, God, the Lord, he's actively involved. He is your shade on your right hand. The shade protects you from heat. If it gets too hot, you go and stand the shade. It says, God is actively with you. He is shading you wherever you go. The Lord keeps you personally, keeping you from exhaustion, keeping you uh, able to do the work he's called you to do. And then he makes a promise and he says, the sun, as powerful as it is, it won't strike you by day, nor the moon by night. That doesn't, doesn't mean it's not going to get hot. When he says the sun won't strike you, it means it's not going to kill you. Ultimately, the sun is, has no control over you, doesn't have power over you. The, the things of nature do not have power over you. The things that happen in the daytime don't have any power over you. Natural forces, they cannot defeat or kill you. God is with you. And he says, nor, nor the moon by night, and you might think that's a little strange because how would the moon strike us by night? But if you think about the way that the ancients used to think of the moon, I think it's, it's kind of twofold. One is, is none of the dangers that happen during the night are going to affect you. But also, the, the moon can have some effects on people. Um, you know, the, the, the Latin word for, 
for crazy lunacy comes from the moon because there was a correlation from ancient times of, hey, when there's a full moon out, the moon and the cycles of the moon, they kind of affect people's brains. They can kind of make people a little nutty and even in our world, if you've ever met a, a doctor or a nurse or a police officer, they'll tell you, yeah, some strange things seem to happen on the full moon. We know, hey, maybe not scientifically, we can't prove that, but for whatever reason, it's true. We don't know how lunar cycles affect us. But there's one study I was reading that there's people with mental illnesses, um, they have more difficult times, and they realize that they're actually in sync with the lunar cycles. We don't understand why. And we're like, well, there's nothing to that. It just happens to be, maybe it's because it's self-fulfilling. Another study, participants weren't aware they'd be evaluated for lunar influence, it says is that researchers discovered that around the full moon, people spent 30% less time in in-rim, which is deep sleep, and they slept for 20 minutes less than they were when there wasn't a full moon. Now, I can attest to that personally. But, but he says not even the moon, not, none of the forces of nature will have power over you to take your life. Yahweh is actively keeping you. And all the things that happen in the daytime, all the things that happen at night, and everything that you're working at, Yahweh, he's actively keeping you. But not only that, verses 7 and 8, they answer the other question. When does he keep you and for how long? When does Yahweh keep you and how long will he keep you? Verses 7 and 8 tell us that Yahweh keeps you in always for always. Yahweh keeps you in all ways and for always. He says the Lord will keep you from all evil. Every kind of evil, every form of evil, whether that is evil people, evil spirits, whatever, any bad things that happen, he will keep you from all evil. That doesn't mean that bad things don't happen to you, but he will keep all evil from having control over you. He will guard you. He will protect you. Because it says, the second half explains that he will keep your life. Evil can't take your life apart from God's ordaining. And ultimately, if you are in Christ Jesus, there's no way that your life can be taken from you. Even if your earthly body is taken from you, one day it's going to be joined with you again. But, but, but no one can take your life if you are in the Lord. He keeps your life. He's able to keep you personally He's able to, able to keep all the forces of nature. He's able to keep you spiritually from all evil. That doesn't mean that you won't battle evil. You will. And actually, he gives you a full armor to help protect you against evil. It's one of the, the means that he provides to keep you from evil, to guard you, is the full armor of God that he, per, he provides for you and the shield of faith and the, the breastplate of righteousness and the sword of the Spirit. He, a cushy life is not being promised here, but he is promising you that he keeps your life. That he guards you. It's a promise you can depend on. You don't need to fear evil. You don't need to fear demons. You don't need to fear the devil. You don't need to fear evil people. The worst that could happen is that you could die. But you will never die in him because he keeps your life. The Lord is your covenant-keeping Father who keeps your life. And then, and then he, how, how does he keep it? And then how long does he keep it? And, and how, until when? Well, look at verse 8. It says the Lord will keep your going out and your coming in. And everything that you're doing, and, and as you go out to obey him, and you come back in, and you go out to obey him, you follow his commands, you obey his promises, you're going up to worship him, you're going out in obedience to him, however you're going out, however you're coming in. He says, and, and here's how long that's going to happen and when that's going to happen. He says, from this time forth, right now, Right now. And, and here's the thing. If, if maybe you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, but you can claim the scripture for yourself from this time forth, 
if I repent of my sins and trusting in myself, if I trust now in Yahweh to keep me through Jesus, who is Emmanuel, who is God with us, and the fact that he, he came to live a perfect life for us, and the fact that he died in my place, the fact that he's been resurrected to new life, and so as so I hope in him, I'm hoping in his everlasting resurrection life, and then I can now claim this scripture that he's going to keep me from this time forth and forevermore. And, and there's a line with no end, forevermore. No matter what you do, whether you're coming into life as a young person, or whether you're on your way out and you're heading towards your end here on the earth. The Lord is your keeper. He keeps your going out and your coming in. He'll guard you now and forevermore. If you're going on a trip, you're coming home. If you're in your backyard, if you're far away, wherever God might call you, every entrance and exit in life is under his guarding care now and throughout all eternity with no end because our keeper has no end. He's the creator of all the heavens and the earth. And, and, and you know that analogy I shared at the very beginning about that, that going through this canyon and you can kind of picture yourself riding on a horse through this valley and you look up and you see the dangers that arise. Well, well here's the thing. You, you, you aren't that person. I'm not saying that you don't go through dark times. You're not going to go through valleys. That you're not going to be surrounded by danger. You, you will be, but you're not on a horse alone. You remember the name of Jesus? what he's called. He's called Emmanuel, God with us. You might be going through a valley. You might be going through difficult times. You might be facing challenges, but you are not alone. God is your keeper. He is with you. That's the kind of God our, our Lord is. He sent his son to be God with us. So that we wouldn't face dangers and challenges alone. And, and then he paved the way. He, he's with us every step of the way because he's actually gone through the way himself. He's walked through every valley. He's walked through every challenge, every temptation that we might face. And, and Jesus knows how to get through every valley. He, he knows the way. He knows the path. But then he faced an enemy that we will never face. He faced the the greatest enemy on the hill, he faced the enemy of our sin on the hill of Golgotha. He, all of the wrath of God rained down on him on that hill. And he hung on the cross for all of us. And he took all the punishment for our sin. So that we might be kept in him. And, and the cross proved that, that he was sufficient his perfect life, his perfect death, proved he was sufficient to bear our sins. And his resurrection guaranteed it. The, the resurrection, that's what the resurrection means for us. The resurrection means that everything that Jesus did and said for us and on our behalf is true. He won't let sin overpower all who are kept in him. He won't let death overpower all who are in him because in him we have life and life eternal. And I love at the end of Matthew when, when Jesus is commissioning us and he's, he's sending us out to, to go and make disciples, teaching them to obey all that he commanded. And, but he gives us a guarantee. Hey, as we're going out to obey him, as we're going up in, in our lives, we're going up to obey him, as we're heading towards Zion, as we're obeying him on that path, and he's giving us this commission to follow him, to make disciples, he doesn't leave us alone. He says, for lo, I'm with you 
always, even to the end of the age. This psalm tells us who our keeper is. He's our creator. It tells us that he keeps us attentively. He keeps us actively and personally. It also tells us that he keeps us now and forever. That's the, the big idea we need to walk away with today. My help comes from the Lord. He's my keeper now and always. Let's pray and have the band come up. God, thank you that you promise that you will never leave or forsake those who are in you, those who you keep. Lord, despite what we fear, despite the enemies, despite the things around us, Lord, you are the one who keeps us. Would you enable us to really believe that? In your name we pray. Before we start singing, I just want to ask you, and you can play, it's okay. You can, I want to ask you, what, what are the things you look to? What are the things you're tempted to look to for help? As we're singing, I want to encourage you to, to just say a prayer to God and confess that where you've not looked to him for help, where you're looking to other things or people or yourself, confess those things. And, and then maybe think about what are the things that I fear? What are the hills that I'm fearing? What enemies are I fearing? And then give those to God. And then, I, then I'm going to come up at the end of the song. We're, we're actually going to recite the psalm together. So whoever's doing overheads, you can go back to the very beginning one at the end of the song. And we're going to recite that psalm together as a prayer. So let's stand. Let's sing. Let's respond to God.